This is the Contractor's Corner podcast series from Solar Power World. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Contractor's Corner podcast from Solar Power World. I am Editor-in-Chief of Solar Power World, Kelly Pickerel. It is the end of April 2021, and I, I hope everyone is doing well. I am still working from home because of the pandemic, but just got my second dose of the vaccine, so things are, are looking up. Um, I've been spending the last few months going through all the applications for the top solar contractors list, so thank you to everyone who has applied so far, and, and if you have questions about the list or, or want to be part of it, just go on to our website, solarpowerworldonline.com. Uh, this year is the 10th anniversary of the list. I can't believe it's been <laughs> 10 years. So we got a lot of fun stuff planned, so we really hope that you will apply. The deadline to apply is May 28th, 2021. Speaking of 10 years, I'm celebrating my 10 years of being in the solar industry this month also. I went to school for journalism. I didn't really expect to land in the solar industry. Of course, I kind of have a special interest in environmental things, but solar wasn't something that I really seeked out. There was a media company that focused on construction publications in the Cleveland area, and they were advertising for an assistant editor. They had this alternative power construction-related magazine, and they needed some help with it. And I was just happy to have a journalism job. I was so excited to be able to work in you know, what, I, what I went to school for. And so when they handed over the, the Alternative Power magazine to me, I was just like, yes, please, thank you. But that being said, there was no one there who had any knowledge or experience in renewable energy. I kind of was just set to do my own thing. So I started off reading the internet, trying to figure out how things work. And and I just had to, you know, make sure that I had all my facts straight because, I, I mean, you guys all know, like just the solar industry in 2011, I mean, it was, it was so much in its infancy stage. There was really not too many experts to talk to. But um, since I am such a nerd bird, I have every single magazine that I've ever been published in. I have them here in, in my archives. And so hopefully, God willing, in 20, 30 years, if you're ever looking for the biggest extensive collection of Solar Power World magazines, they will be in my basement. But I pulled out the first magazines that I did back in 2011. Um, this was before I started at Solar Power World. And the first stories that I wrote was just explaining what renewable portfolio standards were and my first solar cover story was on the company Sundurance which actually became Conti Solar which is now CS Energy so glad to see that they're still doing it. Um, I did some stories on how to use you know brownfields for solar siting and just some other things like that. I this this story I have one that says an, an industry-approved one megawatt, one thousand volt solar inverter is going to change the solar industry. <laughs> that was so long ago. But the one thing I will say is that everyone in the solar industry has been so friendly and so helpful throughout all the learning stages that um, I've gone through. And in fact, in one of these very first early magazines that I did, I I did a, a diagram of how. A solar array works and how you 
how voltage works and amps work when you string them together into series and things like that. And I printed the wrong information. And luckily there was a very nice gentleman who um, emailed me and was like, hey, that's not how this works. So I do want to shout out everyone in the industry that has um, been helping me along the way. 10 years is a long time. I'm so happy now that being with Solar Power World, I have some editors around me who I can bounce ideas off of. There's just a great community within the solar industry on LinkedIn, Twitter, social media, everywhere. I can call people up and talk to them. So thank you so much for for making the last 10 years so exciting. And 10 years is really a big deal for the solar industry. I mean, we're celebrating 10 years of the top solar contractors list. I've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, it's really great to be part of that decade club. And I think that's a perfect segue into today's guest with Silicon Ranch. They are celebrating their 10 years being in solar as well. They kind of have, you know, a, a similar story to me. They they started in Tennessee back in, you know, 10 years ago, and there wasn't a lot going on in Tennessee back then. So they've kind of learned on the fly, and now they've done um, close to one gigawatt of solar installations. So I had a fantastic conversation with them. And so let's get right into it. Here's the interview with Silicon Ranch. All right, let's get started with this month's edition of Contractors Corner. Today we're talking with Reagan Farr. He is CEO of Utility Scale Developer Silicon Ranch. So thank you so much for joining me today, Reagan. Well, Kelly, thank you for having me. And again, congratulations uh, on your 10-year anniversary. I think that's a really good kind of intro to you guys because Silicon Ranch has been around for 10 years now. So tell me about how the company got started. You know, it was interesting when when Silicon Ranch uh, first came together as an idea, there really was no solar industry uh, in the southeast U.S. And we're a Nashville, Tennessee based company. And the genesis of the idea really came from uh, work that we had done when myself and my fellow co-founder, Matt Kisber and Governor Bredesen were in state government. Governor Bredesen had been to a conference where he heard Jeff Amelt, who was then CEO of General Electric, and Thomas Friedman with the uh, New York Times give a speech that um, the Green Revolution was happening, and you could look at it in any one of a number of ways. It was political security and energy security. It could be environmental. But they said you would really be missing the ball because what this truly is, is an economic development opportunity. And that's how you as political leaders should think about it. So Governor Bredesen came back and and Matt and I, he was commissioner of economic development. I was the revenue commissioner and we worked together a lot on putting together uh, incentives for state government to to inspire investment and and job creation in the state. He came back and said, "I, I want you two to put together a clean energy job strategy for the state of Tennessee. And that really, at that time, it was not at all solar specific. It was looking at all things across the clean energy sector. And Tennessee has a nice, strong manufacturing base. So we really focused on uh, manufacturing and, uh, and also leveraged experience and insights from people like Fred Smith at, at FedEx and we had Oak Ridge. And, um, it was interesting. We ended up being very successful. We had some wind investment in, in Tennessee, some biofuel investment, 
but we also came across uh, and landed two very large investments from polysilicon manufacturers. And um, in engaging with them, they were billion dollar plus investments, uh, really got to know the leadership of, of those companies and understand that polysilicon had always been a primary component of, of the chips in our computers, but they were starting to ramp up production because more of their product, <clears throat> excuse me, was going into uh, this new technology and the solar wafers. And um, at the time, solar was still a very premium product. In fact, they could manufacture this polysilicon in the US, put it in a 747 and fly it across the ocean to Asia where it was melted down and uh, sliced into wafers and then assemble the modules and ship them back. So think of the cost of being able to ship a premium a product in a 747 and not across, uh, across the sea in an ocean liner. <laughs> um, so as we talked to them, one of the things that uh, we found interesting is uh, they said the Moore's law of solar is different than the Moore's law of computer chips, but we basically believe that for every doubling of deployed capacity, cost are going to come down 20%. And at the time, that was a relatively small starting base globally to work from. And that was a real data point that we filed away. And uh, the, the final piece of the puzzle that was kind of a data point that I thought was interesting, we, um, we did a lot of, lot of work trying to uh, work with companies from China who would invest in, in, in Tennessee or partner with Tennessee companies. And we, uh, we were in China meeting um, with some leadership from Applied Materials, and they had built a huge R&D facility in Xi'an, China. And, uh, you know, the governor is actually a successful businessman, successful politician, but one of the more interesting things, he's a, he's a physicist with a degree from Harvard. So when we showed up, I think this uh, tour guide thought he was just giving some political figures a tour of his R&D facility. What he found out was... Uh, the governor asked a whole lot of questions, and Matt and I had our own questions as well. So we ended up touring this facility and, and, and trading uh, dialogue for almost five or six hours. And at the very end of the tour, we're walking outside, and uh, one of our last questions was, this is an incredible R&D facility. Why are you putting it in China and not in a state like Tennessee? We would love to have this investment in our state. And he said, you know, I would love to be putting an investment like this in the US, Tennessee. He's like, uh, look around and the air in Xi'an is incredibly polluted. He's like, I, I don't, I'm not anxious to be here in Xi'an, but the fact of the matter is China has said they are moving into renewable energy in a meaningful way. And when the government there says they're gonna do something, they do it and they do it at scale. And if you want to play in the space, you've got to be in the country. And he said, you know, you are in a unique situation with TVA, a governmental utility company. He said, if you could convince TVA to buy 50 megawatts of renewable solar generated electricity a year for three years, that would be enough volume. So that gives you a sense of how the industry's changed. That would be enough volume for us to consider putting uh, an R&D and, and potentially a manufacturing facility in Tennessee. So um, came back to the U.S. And, and started saying, what type of incentives would the state have to enact 
to enable TVA to economically procure 50 megawatts of solar a year for three years. And uh, I started putting together these models along with what we learned about the Moore's Law of Solar and said, you know, you really don't need a state level incentive. This problem is going to solve itself with time. And uh, we were coming to the end of, of Governor Bredesen's second term. He was term limited. And myself and Matt Kisbridge said we were going to take that opportunity to do something together that was entrepreneurial. My heart was very much in the renewable energy space. So um, we, we worked on a, um, a business plan that would help companies and utilities achieve their renewable energy goals um, using a third party kind of turnkey outsource. And this was really pre-PPAs. There weren't PPAs out in the marketplace. And the concept was really, you have these companies that wanna procure renewable energy, but it's not their core business. They don't wanna spend the time thinking about it. They want an easy button. So if you wanna pr promote and encourage the deployment of renewable power, you needed to make it easy for these companies to do that. So uh, we took that idea and we shared it with Governor Bredesen and at first, he just gave us advice and said, you, you guys need to, have you thought of this and that? And this is my experience when I was doing some of my other startup companies. And after a while of, uh, of talking to us about the idea, he said, I think you're on to something. If, um, if you're open to it, I wouldn't mind being a, a partner and we could all do this together. So Matt and I always laughed that it took us a while to deliberate. It took us about one second to look at each other and say, we're all in. This is this is really exciting. So I left state government to truly build out a business plan uh, three months before Governor Bredesen, actually probably a little more than that, probably about five months before Governor Bredesen and, and Matt uh, left office. They left office together so that when Matt, his last day at state government was on a Friday, and when he showed up on a Monday, we had an office and an accounting system and phones and computers and all of the unglamorous things that you have to do to get set up as, as a startup company. And uh, that was really the, the genesis. And we've, we've really stuck true to our, our basic business plan of being a, a full service turnkey renewable energy uh, solutions provider to commercial industrial users and to utilities. Did the Silicon Ranch name come from just the influence of polysilicon within Tennessee, or how did the name come about? So uh, you'll love this line. Governor Bredesen started uh, several companies, many of which have been successful and been listed on national exchanges, New York Stock Exchange. And he said uh, one of the, the most difficult questions of every company he's ever been a part of is, what are we going to name it? <laughs> it was funny. We, we, the three of us sat around in our, our, our little conference room that was our first office. And we said, what are we going to name this company? And, uh, you know, at the time, everyone was kind of thinking solar this, sun that. <laughs> uh, but all of these names were kind of cropping up across the, the Internet domain. So we said, you know, let's all go home. We've talked about a lot. Let's make a list of our top five. And uh, then we'll all get back together and pick a name. And before we had gotten home and settled, Governor Bredesen had come up with the name and the logo design and said, hey, you guys don't feel obligated, but I think I, I've come up with something here. I'm curious for your opinion. 
So uh, as soon as we saw it, we said, all right, so that is the name of the company, Silicon Ranch. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's actually been great because um, uh, I love the logo. And as we've grown, uh, the brand has really grown with us and has become a part of, of who we are in the marketplace. Yeah. No, it's a great name. <laughs> and it dovetails so well with our regenerative energy and our partnership with uh, local ranchers across the community. So uh, I wish I could say we had the foresight when we came up with the name that it was going to dovetail so smoothly, but um, I love it now. And it's a, it's a huge compliment to our regenerative energy platform. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. You guys have grown a lot in the last 10 years and, and you're now partially owned by Shell. What does an investment from an energy company like that, what does that do for your solar efforts? You know, it was, it was interesting. We were not looking for a partner like Shell. Shell actually identified Silicon Ranch and uh, knocked on our door and said, uh, we want uh, for you to be our U.S. solar platform. And at the time, uh, we had two um, very well-established, deep-pocketed pension fund investors that we were quite happy with. And we had just closed an equity round, which is, uh, you know, it's rare in this space when you're like, man, we have our balance sheet is we have plenty of cash. We don't need any additional investment. <laughs> but when, when we found out that Shell was interested, um, we said, we've got to meet with them and better understand how we could partner together. And um, we didn't want to be part of a marketing campaign or a greenwashing initiative. And we were pretty skeptical. Uh, actually, it took us a while of, of talking to their deal team and ultimately flew to The Hague to meet with all of Shell's senior leadership. And it was on that trip that I really became convinced that Shell was committed to the energy transition. It was uh, Shell has a world-famous scenario planning group, and they had the head of that group come and speak to us. And they said, um, every scenario that we run on the energy future shows increased importance of electricity. Uh, and in all those scenarios, natural gas and renewables, particularly solar, play an incredibly important role. So we feel like we're an energy company. We need to be in this space. And um, we want you to be a part of helping us achieve this energy transition. And then we actually, we were scheduled for what they call a a 15-minute handshake with, with Ben. He shells global CEO, uh, Ben Van Buren. And, and we came into his, his conference room. And um, what was supposed to be 15 minutes and a highly scripted day turned into an hour-long conversation where Ben knew all about our company, all about our bios, about what we were doing in the U.S. And um, we finally asked him, as his staff, they were knocking on the doors and you've got other meetings. And we're like we're very flattered, but it's, you know, you're the CEO of Shell. This is a relatively small investment vis-a-vis -vis what you do around the world. And it was interesting, and this really sealed the deal for me. He said, Shell got into the renewable space a decade ago, and we did it through manufacturing. Uh, they actually manufactured solar modules. And he said it was a failure. They ended up unwinding that business. And he said, you know, that really set our renewable transition back, our energy company transition back by almost a decade. And he said an investment of this size would normally never even cross my desk. Um, but because of the importance of this 
to the execution of our global strategy, we need to make sure we get it right with the right partners because we can't afford another failure. We don't have 10 more years to waste. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really, it was, I walked out of that meeting saying, I think we have found the right partner and the resources that Shell brings to the table at any one time, they're the second or third largest wholesale power supplier in the U.S. They allow you to uh, incorporate renewables with non-renewable sources and deliver in-product solutions to your user. And uh, they are fully committed to uh, being a big player in the energy transition. And uh, anytime you can partner with a company with the resources like that and the commitment to the vision, I think that's a great opportunity you just can't walk away from. Definitely. Definitely. You've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but I know Silicon Ranch is, you know, uh, working in a lot of really young solar markets like Tennessee and Georgia. Are, is that like a conscious effort to focus on those areas or is that just kind of what has, hap- what has you know, planned out? Why are you working in kind of underdeveloped markets? So I love, um, I, I always feel like Silicon Ranch is an innovator. And uh, we started as a company in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, we said we started small, our first projects were 200 kW and then a megawatt. And, um, and at the time, those were large solar projects uh, for all parties involved. But we really felt like Um, The fact that we started in these markets, none of which had renewable portfolio standards, none of which had any solar penetration to speak of, it really allowed us to um, cut our teeth across all facets. Like it wasn't just our counterparties we had to convince. All of the banks that we did business with, we were their first solar loan. So I, I actually have sat in meetings with lenders and they would ask me a list of questions. And one of them would be, what happens if the sun doesn't shine for such a long period of time, you can't repay your loan? And, and I'll never forget one of my answers was, well, if that happens, this loan is gonna be the least of your worries. <laughs> it's like we're all in a bad way. Uh, so, you know, innovating and working with those banking partners, innovating and building, like we did the, we drafted one of the first bilateral PPAs for our Volkswagen project. I'll never forget our first project in Georgia with Georgia Power. Um, They sent us a PPA that had already been approved by the Public Service Commission. It was for solar, but it was their biogas PPA. They thought just because it was renewable that it would translate. We're like, well, no, solar is an intermittent resource. It really needs to be changed. So even a sophisticated company like Southern Company and their Georgia Power subsidiary, we helped them craft the language for their first solar PPA that it's been modified slightly, but basically the document they've used for all of their subsequent procurements, we were a part of crafting that document. And I really think that trial by fire and and, and learning on the field together uh, helped us. We did the first, we opened up the Arkansas solar market to the first large scale project in Mississippi. And it's truly our, our intro to all of these markets was, wasn't it's the environmental aspects are very good and they're there and they're positive and our community impact um, uh, is, is, is meaningful. But what this is really about is economic development and jobs. 
And, uh, you know, I've seen the pendulum swing a bit more to environmental concerns. But when we first started dialoguing with these companies, uh, none of them were doing procurement, at least the utility companies, with an eye toward the environmental aspects. It was all economics, jobs, and, um, and, and as the industry has become more efficient and power prices from solar have become much more competitive, uh, it's interesting. Now you don't talk so much about that. The business case has been made. Solar is great for economic development. It's competitive economically. Now we do spend a little more time talking about the environmental impact and, and the other positives associated with solar development. Yeah. You work with a lot of different utilities and, and you're also working like with the, I guess, smaller co-op type utility. Is the experience working with co-ops different than working with the larger investor owned utilities? It is. I, I, you know, the co-op business model is one that aligns very closely with our mission, vision, and values. You know, co-ops are owned by their members. They're very focused on triple net benefits, you know, low cost power, quality of life in the community, and reliability of service. Um, and so they take a slightly different view. You know, investor-owned utilities, by their nature, um, are looking out for the shareholders. With co-ops, the shareholders are the community members. So they really want to make sure that when they partner and bring a, a solar provider into their community, uh, that that solar provider is going to reflect well on them um, and that they're going to add something to the community. And our whole, from the beginning, our focus has been everywhere we go and put a project, we want to make that community a better place for us being there. And we engage really based on feedback from the community that can translate into sponsoring scholarships, participating in the local chamber, providing an education curriculum to the schools. Every community has a different goal and objective, but we really like the way our values and approach of long-term asset ownership uh, aligns with the objectives of co-ops to improve the communities that they serve. So um, I love all of our customers, but I will say there's a special affinity between Silicon Ranch and the co-ops the U.S. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but uh, Silicon Ranch, you, you support regenerative practices on solar farms. And so you're either partnering, you know, with livestock grazing or, or bringing other positive land management practices to your solar projects. So tell me more about this. Like how big is the scale? Are you doing this on every single one of the projects that you're developing? So the answer is uh, we're doing it not just across the projects that we're currently developing, we've tried to go back and look at how we can incorporate this practice on projects that are already built and operating. And can we transition from traditional land management to regenerative land management? And uh, rewinding a little bit, I think it's always interesting to hear the, the context. Um, for years, uh, I had looked at, um, you know, as long-term asset owners, we like to own the real estate under our property as well. We take a very long-term view of how these assets are, are going to be managed and maintained going forward. And because of our commitment to the community, we like to own the land. So as we grew over time, uh, we became a quite significant landowner. And, um, and then 
you own a lot of land, you start thinking, how do you maintain it? And I really viewed the vegetation as a, as a nuisance and an overhead. I was like, oh, I've got to mow this grass. It seems to grow nonstop. So we were relying heavily on the traditional power company way of managing vegetation, which was a mechanical mowing, heavy application of herbicides, heavy application of pesticides. And, um, you know, that, that was working, but we were seeing uh, some issues where uh, we might have put too much herbicide on and we were having some erosion. We, we were seeing issues, but I hadn't fully processed what that meant, like what our role in creating those issues was. And then very serendipitously, we had a project. Uh, it had been announced in the media, but was not yet built or, or even under construction. And uh, little did we know the property uh, was next to one of the larger regenerative ranchers in the southeast. And um, the owner of that ranch had reached out, gotten our contact information and said, I'd like to, I'd like you to come to my ranch. I want to talk to you. So um, I brought Matt Beasley, who's our chief commercial, commercial officer down. Uh, we, we went to Georgia together and it was really with the goal of this is going to be a neighbor. We're going to be neighbors for a long time. He needs to know who we are. We need to explain to him why we're such a good uh, neighbor and how we're going to be respectful of his ranch and, and develop responsibly. And, and we get down to his ranch and he is a character out of a movie. I mean, central casting. Uh, one of the most interesting men I, I've met and I was instantly charmed. We, we came in, it was kind of late. We had dinner with his family and some people from his ranch. Everything we ate had been prepared and grown from that ranch. It was an amazing meal. And you just said, these are people I want to get to know better. That was what I thought at the end of our dinner. We met the next day and Will really went into education mode. And he said, you know, I used to be a traditional cattle rancher. And he's a fourth generation rancher. The fifth and sixth generation are already on the land and committed to following in his footsteps. And he said, um, you know, it had gotten to a point I had, I employed maybe five or six people. Uh, our, our town was devastated economically. I just looked at all my cattle and said, what can I do to put more poundage through this processing system? And he said, it just was not a rewarding life. And I'm sitting here, my kids uh, may not be interested. This could be, I could be the end, the last generation that's in this business. And he said he, he, he had a, and this was 20 years ago, he, he had a mindset change. He said he started reading some of the research from Alan Savory, and he slowly started adopting uh, regenerative grazing. So uh, he quit using herbicides, he quit using pesticides, he quit using antibiotics, he started trying, he, he went to full grass-fed meat and he incorporated multi-species. So instead of just cattle, he had all kinds of different animals uh, using managed grazing so that they hit the land really intensely and then moved on and the land had time to regenerate. And he said, so many things happened at once. He's like, one, my land started improving. The productivity out of the land started improving. Um, two, he's like, when you do things regeneratively, you, you take out some of the, uh, the scale of it. You can't just run things through a process because you're always acting and pivoting on how 
there is no total blueprint for regenerative ranching. You have to look, observe nature, and then try to solve solutions. So he said, you needed more people. So he started hiring more people and bringing economic life back to his community. He said he really started, he found different customers because people were willing to pay a premium for grass-fed, grass-fed meat that was not subject to antibiotics or different things. And uh, over 20 years, he had built a flowering enterprise, 150 plus employees. He pays twice the average wage in this county. Uh, it's become a tourism destination. He is one of the largest regenerative ranchers and suppliers to, to companies like Publix and, and others. And um, here we are. He's, he's had 20 years of keeping his land and in, in, uh, uh, in, in regenerative land management. And um, here's his company. And he was worried we were going to be next door to him and, and start using herbicides and pesticides that would spill over into into his land. And uh, it was amazing. He had two jars in his, um, he has an old church that he uses as a, um, as a, as a conference center. And in one jar is this beautiful, rich black soil. And in the other jar, is just this red lifeless clay. And he was like, these two soil samples, he's like, I just, just dug them not too long ago. And he said, they're from sites that are 20 feet apart. It's like that black soil is on my farm that I've regeneratively ranched for the past 20 years. It's full of carbon and life. This red clay was on a traditionally farmed single monoculture crop that's been subject to herbicides, pesticides, and single, single crop rotation. And uh, the soil is devoid of life and completely counts on the application of fertilizers every year to be productive and, and grow. And he, um, he, he really said, so I don't have erosion problems. Uh, every year my soil improves. Every year this, this guy's soil degrades. He's like, and you're in a part of Georgia that's got um, high clay content. It's very highly subject to erosion. You ought to use regenerative ranching, land management on your farm or on your solar ranch. And he said, you know what you can do? I'll do it for you. And, um, That'll give me extra land to graze my, my animals, and you will be using best practices. And, um, so we, we ended up walking away with a gentleman's agreement that we were going to work together. Um, he had brought in a consultant uh, to, to help us think through all of the protocols for regenerative land management. I ended up being so bought into this and Matt was so bought into it. We hired the consultant full time at Silicon Ranch and said, we want to totally change the way we look at our land. It's no longer just uh, in our vegetation is a nuisance to be managed. It's an asset. It's a biological asset and we should really treat it like that. And, oh, this is, we're all about commitment to community. We're buying a lot of land that used to be an agricultural use we can reactivate it for agricultural use, incorporating this regenerative energy protocol. So it's interesting. We partnered, you know, Will is uh, introduced us to the Savory Institute. We met with other Savory Hub Institute ranchers. Michael Bowdy, who heads this program up for us, had an incredible network of people he, he brought to the table. And this program has been so rewarding uh, for me personally, for the company. It's good for our sites. 
it's good for the communities and it's been incredibly well received and it's something that we're trying not just to roll out across all of our facilities we want the industry to adopt it because as solar grows if you look at any of the growth curves uh, for what we need to do we're going to take hundreds of thousands and millions of acres of land to support our renewable energy generation managing that land responsibly in a way that results in measurable outcomes, which is a big part of our regenerative energy platform. We measure and scientifically report on our outcomes uh, and then adjust our practices accordingly. The industry really needs to step up and, and start doing things the right way now while we have the opportunity to. And a huge part of our regenerative energy initiative is creating those standards, sharing those standards with, with other uh, IPPs and solar owners, because we want to see the whole industry elevate its standard of land care. I remember the stat in one of your um, like news releases about your regenerative practices, something about, you know, we only have a certain number of years left actually for good like farming soil unless we start doing something, these regenerative practices and bringing that back. And I, I, that, I, that stat is just like so amazing to me. So for the solar industry to be able to help in that area, I think it's, you know, it's a perfect situation. Well, thank you, Kelly. And I will tell you, we saw it. So I was already, we had plants that were seven, eight years old and uh, we were suffering from erosion problems and losing our topsoil. And it was amazing, you know, one, you've got to go out there and solve that. You're dumping rock or more earth or getting a, a bulldozer out there. Um, once we started transitioning those sites to regenerative land management, it is amazing how quickly the land can heal itself when you do things the right way. And uh, you really can. I, we're scientifically measuring all this, but I I don't need to wait for the scientific results. You can really see it when you go out to the sites, what the positive impact is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So along those same lines, I mean, you are functioning as a project owner and you're doing the O&M at all your projects. What other trends are you seeing in maintenance? Of course, I love seeing all of your sheep photos and, and seeing all the different things that you guys are trying, but are you using more drones at sites? What, what, what's helping you do O&M? So it's interesting. Uh, drones have gone from a, an expensive curiosity to, I think, a part of everybody's arsenal and how to improve your ongoing operations and maintenance. Uh, we do a whole lot of predictive analytics. We're a very data-driven firm. Um, and thankfully, we have a, by having all of our O&M in staff and building our projects and owning them for the long term, uh, we get to complete the cycle of here's feedback from the field. Here's what works really well. Here's where we can improve and do better. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the things that makes Silicon Ranch uh, unique is, is the full life cycle ownership model that we have and our willingness to invest and improve in our constructability. So I always like to say the plants that we build today are better than the plants we built four years ago, just because we've incorporated the lessons. Um, I, you know, we've designed, frankly, our experience of having livestock on site, and it's not just sheep. We really try to incorporate 
multi-species land. Uh, it's just a best practice where we can. Uh, but if you're going to have animals on site, you know, thinking through wire management, through water supplies, you know, uh, and through fencing and, and protecting certain sensitive equipment. So we design a bit differently now with regenerative land management goals and objectives in mind. So uh, it's always an evolving uh, process. I, I think one thing I love about the solar industry is we're still in the second inning of this journey together. Um, there is so much innovation happening in our space and you just need to, again, rely on data, embrace new technology, but also uh, understand what you're trying to achieve. And like for us, I'm not going to ever build another plant where we're not designing and, and thinking about uh, the fact that we're going to be using our regenerative land practices under that plant. Um, but drones are a huge part of it, the predictive analytics. And, you know, the, um, the beauty of solar is you can always put up more sensors and there's a lot of data. So it's what do you do with that data and um, how do you optimize operations? And uh, it's, it's neat to have projects that are now eight years old with eight years of operating history that you can start to see trends um, in, in the industry. Mm -hmm. Along those same lines, I mean, it seems like you guys are using a good mix of, you know, thin film solar panels or crystalline silicon panels. You're using trackers and fixed tilt mounting. Since you're working on so many large utility scale projects, when does choosing between different types of products really make a difference? And is, is this a continuous learning process for you? Yeah, that's a great question. It really is. And, and there's no one right answer because I think different products perform better in different geographies and there's definitely different peculiarities to sites that lend itself to one technology or another. What we um, really have invested in is strategic partnerships where we we have a, a list of, of valuable partners, suppliers, and we innovate collaboratively and, and a great example of that is uh, we, we buy a lot of Next Tracker tracking. And Next Tracker had this true capture product where it would try to optimize around cloudy weather so it would do back tracking. And they had a lot of data because they had run, run some uh, analysis on silicon-based modules, but they had not done the same type of analysis on thin film. So uh, we actually put uh, that technology on some of our operating plants had true capture on half of it and the other half is the control and measure the data and we're really a part of helping fine-tune because at the end of the day it's a, it's a software product as much as it is a hardware product what they're doing with true capture helping them optimize around how should true capture work with thin film that has different uh, properties than, than silicon so uh, part of that innovation is, is really partnership collaborative driven. And I think it's been great for us and, and great for our suppliers. Mm -hmm. How is product supply for your projects? Are you seeing any shortages anywhere or do you have just those good partnerships that you're, you've been, you've been okay? You know, I think every project has, um, I would say, have you seen one solar project? You've seen one, no matter how many you've done. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a uh, COVID last year, uh, definitely impacted supply chains. And I think that's where, strategic partnerships really matter. How do you collaborate together to solve supply chain issues? I think uh, looking forward, 
the uh, forced labor issues and the polysilicon supply issues kind of tied to that forced labor situation in China is creating challenges in, uh, in our supply chain. And there's definitely some logistics uh, inefficiencies going on right now that have nothing to do with renewables, but renewables are being impacted because of, um, of, of how the imbalance of trade has worked during these COVID times. So I think uh, partnerships are so important because these situations, a lot of them are beyond any of our control. And it's really how, how do you respond to those situations that's important. And it's a lot easier to do that with a partner than it is to just do that with a supplier that you may not have an ongoing relationship with. Mm -hmm. Will the end of the solar panel tariffs this year, is it going to affect you in any way? Or is it, it does seem like the, the China forced labor issue is kind of the larger problem we need to look at, but are the tariffs going to affect you at all? You know, I think the tariffs are kind of priced into the marketplace. I, I think um, the the forced labor issues in China and the logistics cost have not really been priced into the longer term view. So those are definitely things that uh, we keep our eye on. We, we try to not buy out too far into the future because it's Every time I've guessed on on solar module pricing, I've been wrong. <laughs> so, I uh, but but we do always try to lock in and hedge a significant part of our supply because we're buying for our contracted projects, so it's a little bit different. We're not buying speculatively. I I know what I'm building next year, so uh, I can go out in the marketplace and, and and tie out that risk with contracting, which is a fortunate part of, of our business model. Mm-hmm. So Silicon Ranch was a small startup, you know, 10 years ago, and now you're a major player in the, the U.S. solar market. So what does the company want to accomplish in the next 10 years? Goodness, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'll never forget when we lost our first one megawatt project. Uh, <laughs> it was the first project we didn't get. And uh, I was so beat up because that was like our project, not for the year, but for half the year at least. And I was real downcast and, and <laughs> Governor Bredesen came in and said, you know, chin up, at some point you're going to be contracting a megawatt a day. And that seemed so unreal. I was like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> I'll be okay. Don't worry about me. And you know, now we're, we're contracting way more than a megawatt a day. Um, so I think the challenge, and I talk to Matt about this all the time. He's on the board with me and, and we always lay these uh, business plans out together. In this industry, you have to reimagine what you can be every six months to a year or you're underselling and not challenging yourself the way you should be. We are in such a meaningful growth phase as an industry. Um, we need to grow responsibly and make smart decisions, but I think uh, putting any type of statement out there for 10 years from now, um, it's, it's so difficult because I, every time I set a goal, we achieve, I, I think it's unachievable. We achieve it and then some, and you've got to reimagine the future. So uh, I've, I've tried not to set long-term goals. Now I just say, um, how fast can we responsibly grow to help meet the needs of what needs to be done in this space? And uh, it's interesting. People always ask me about our competitors. I don't feel like we have competitors. The what has to happen in this country for us to be successful in the energy transition is so broad in scale. 
everybody needs to succeed. We all need to be challenging ourselves and our growth goals every six months because there is a lot of work in front of us and uh, we're nowhere near to doing what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing and yeah, hopefully you can, uh, you know, set the, set the goals and the standards for, for other companies. And I really enjoy getting to know Silicon Ranch and hearing your story. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Reagan. Well, you're a huge part of the journey of this industry. So thank you for what you do. And I uh, so appreciate it. And hopefully maybe we can touch base in, in, uh, in the future and see if, uh, if we were right on any of our predictions. <laughs> yeah, I, I would look forward to that. <laughs> This has been another edition of Contractors Corner. Join us each month as editor Kelly Pickerel chats with solar installers across the country. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Visit us online to hear more great podcasts, view industry videos, and read our great editorial content. SolarPowerWorldOnline.com. See you back here next month.